Hey there, and welcome to Upfront, a podcast that features conversations with Connecticut-based top performers who represent the very best in their field and how they are making an impact in their industry and here at home in Connecticut. Thanks for listening. Hello, hello, and welcome to a new episode of Upfront. I'm Derek Beer. Thank you so much for being here with us. Now, if you love golf, then chances are you've probably heard of the Travelers Championship. In fact, I'll bet you know the tournament, even if you're not a golf fan, because it's a huge deal here in Connecticut. Not only does it attract an incredible player field of some of the biggest names in the game, but it does a lot of good work for our communities. It gives back millions to charitable causes throughout Connecticut. And simply put, it's a fun event to attend. There's great food, a fan zone with all kinds of activities for the kids and families, music, and so much more. So what does it take to put on a professional golf tournament, and who's the team behind it? Look no further than our guest this month, Nathan Grube. Nathan has been the executive director of the Greater Hartford Community Foundation and the tournament director of the Travelers Championship, Connecticut's PGA Tour, since 2005. During this time, the tournament has generated more than $20 million for charity, and it has been recognized by the PGA Tour for numerous awards, including the big one being named Tournament of the Year by the PGA Tour in 2017. So what's Nathan's story, and how did he go from playing baseball to running one of the best golf tournaments? Let's find out. All right, Nathan Groob, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Glad to be here. Thanks for the chance, Derek. First things first, uh, where are you at this moment in time? Like at this exact moment in time, I'm in a, a, a little building <laughs> in the back of my house called the Gympartment. Uh, my daughter named it the Gympartment because uh, we had workout equipment out here and then it was there was a couch and you could technically actually sleep here. And uh, it's a very small place and it's actually where I... Um, uh, I stayed after the tournament last year when I had to quarantine, and I actually lived in the gym apartment with a little camp stove and made my meals and stuff like that coming back when I was in quarantine. So I uh, set up an office out here, and I, and I love it, but my daughter affectionately named it the gym apartment. So. I like that name. Most people would call it a man cave, but the gym apartment is, is so much cooler. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. I've kind of run that name around before and people are like, what? That doesn't make any sense. I'm like, hey, you know what the name my kid gave it? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. All right. So let's go way back before we get to today and all the great things you're up to. Um, where did you grow up? So I grew up in San Diego. Uh, my dad was in the military he was stationed in San Diego and then he retired from active duty. So then he went to work for the military in San Diego. So we didn't have to you know, bounce around at all while he was in active duty. He actually, um, uh, you know, was able to stay there. And that's where I grew up and had an absolute blast, loved it. Um, didn't know what weather was. And what I mean by that is weather never was part of the conversation and anything that you did. It was always 72, you know, you never really had to worry about anything. And so you just did stuff, right? I mean, some mornings were a little bit cooler, some mornings were a little bit. And so like whether it was, you know, being outside playing sports or driving up the mountains to go skiing or whatever, like 
weather wasn't a part of the conversation. And I bring that up to say that because when I moved to New England, like weather affects every single thing you do. You know, it's like, okay, how much snow is going to fall? Wait, when's it going to melt? Is there ice tomorrow? It's like, like all these things. And I remember my brother, he's, uh, he still lives in San Diego. And when I moved up here, like we would be talking about stuff. He goes, man, why are you always talking about the weather? I'm like, it impacts your life. He's like, yeah. <laughs> I don't even get it. I'm like, I know, I know. So anyway, but, uh, it was, uh, it was a blast growing up in San Diego. Um, had a lot of fun, but, uh, you know, just kind of wanted to see other parts of the country, other parts of the world and, uh, ended up moving away from San Diego when I went to college. But, you know, I still, I still consider my roots there and, uh, it definitely obviously had a, had an impact on how I, how I grew up, but, uh, it's a great place. It literally, we, we joke, it's the world's smallest thermometer. I mean, it never really moved. You know, mm, <laughs> not that right. much at all. So, um, but it was, uh, it was fun. It was, it was a good time. It was a great place to grow up. Very nice. And going back to your childhood aspirations, was there anything in particular you wanted to be when you grew up? So I grew up, I would say, wanting to play baseball. I mean, that was kind of my, I would say, my passion. I mean, uh, my dad was my coach throughout the years. He would coach the all-star teams. He'd coach the clinics. He would coach, like, everything and it was like he would come home for work and i'd be like dad go across the street and get on that curve we're pitching you know like so he'd come home and he'd be like oh all right buddy and he, i could hear his knees pop you know and he'd go and he'd sit across the street and, and he'd throw with me and like that was you know what i loved to do growing up i, I would do that and then we would go with snow skiing because it was kind of novel in san diego you know like we didn't have snow so we have to drive two and a half hours up to you know uh, mammoth and big bear and some areas in southern california that had some snow so snow skiing, but really it was baseball. I mean, that was what I played growing up um, right up until I picked up a golf club. But, uh, but before that, it was it was baseball all the time. And it was uh, that's that's what I absolutely love. Very nice. I, you know, I think of California and I think of baseball. I think of uh, the Bad News Bears. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can't pick which Bad News Bears I would be. And that was actually it's funny. I, I went back and watched that movie later after i watched it as a kid and i'm like my mom and dad I'm like how did you guys let me watch that those kids kids had foul mouth you know what i mean it was like yeah it was, it was very foul. i don't think you could make that exact movie today <laughs> no chance there's a number of movies like that that you could not make I'm like you know what i'm not sure i need to go back and talk to my wife to see if this is a good idea to show our kids this movie that i thought was a good one yeah. were you a padres fan was that your team uh, absolutely tony gwynn steve garvey yeah. gary templeton i mean all those guys it was uh you know, growing up, it was the Padres. I mean, you know, and it was interesting. We had the Padres and the Chargers. Like, I mean, they weren't, you know, that good. I mean, I think I think when I was in the in the eighties, oh, my sports trivia is going to be exposed here. But I mean, I think we went to the World Series maybe once. But I mean, overall, we were just bad. You know, but you always had Tony Gwynn. You know, he had like nine hundred and forty-five batting titles that the guy won, and he was a San Diego guy, and so. Um, I was. As much as uh, you could be a Padres fan growing up, I definitely was. They're a totally different team now. My gosh, they built the stadium on the water and they have a whole new, I mean, it's a whole different deal. Yeah, now. yeah, for sure. And you mentioned, uh, uh, I think you mentioned a brother. One brother, uh, sisters, brothers? Are you yeah, I'm older brother, older brother and older sister. So I'm the youngest. Okay. And so, um, you know, my sister's six years old and my brother's four years older. So I came along and my brother was just old enough to pound on me, yeah. you know, like it was like four years older. It's like, oh, no, you know, I'm going to beat you at every sport. I'm going to beat you at everything. And so it was a very, uh, very fun uh, experience growing up till I got to about 18, 19. And then we could, you know, really compete, you know, head to head on stuff. Yep. And then about 21, 22, 
you know, he stopped playing golf with me. He's like, yeah, I'm done because he's a big surfer and like, that's all he does. And, and I, I never grew up surfing. So surfing kind of was his sport and golf was kind of mine, you know, after baseball. So we kind of parted ways, but yeah, I was the youngest of three growing up in, in Southern California. So they, they paved the path for you and you can get away with anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. I, cause my personality, it was like, I watched my sister, she got in trouble a little bit, but not a lot. My brother just, oh my goodness, drove my parents crazy. <laughs> and I, I at, you know, four years younger, I was watching it and I just got to sit back and go, why are you making your life so hard? Mm. Like, like, it doesn't have to be this hard. And so I watched him going, well, okay, well, that makes sense. I'm not going to do that. So he paved a way for me to show me basically the path of least resistance. Yeah. So Oh my gosh, I stayed out of so much trouble because I watched him run headfirst into it. And I'm like, okay, well, thanks for learning that lesson for both of us. Now I'm just going to go a different direction. So yep. I haven't actually said thank you to him for that, you know, because he's my <laughs> older brother. I can't really say thank you, but no, he did. So I uh, I got to learn from his mistakes, I think. Yeah, I'm the same way. I, I, I'm the oldest and, you know, I paved the path for my brother. So everything I wanted, he got. And I always tell the BB gun story, right? I wanted a BB gun when I was a kid, you know, almost like that movie, you'll shoot your eye out, right? And, oh, yeah. and no, no, no BB gun. Then my brother, can I get a BB gun? Sure. You know, no. Nope. Oh my gosh. You know what? You would have a lovely conversation with my older brother because he thinks I got everything that I ever wanted. And he's like, hey, I didn't get that. I didn't get that. So that was, a, that was always a fun family dynamic. How about your parents? What you said, your father was uh, in the military, um, mm -hmm. and 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 mom. What did what what did both your parents do? I mean, was your father a career military person or? Well, so what he did was he retired from active duty and then actually went to work uh, for the Navy in San Diego as a civilian. So he stayed in the reserves, um, but then went to work for the Navy. And he was the uh, the director of MWR, which is Morale, Welfare and Recreation okay. on the Navy base in San Diego. So what that means is he got to run all the cool stuff on the base, nice. the golf course, the bowling alleys, the marinas. Uh, like anything that the sailors and their families would do when they came in to kind of for R and R, you know, development from a family standpoint, all the daycare centers, like all that type of stuff, he ran. And I didn't understood what that what what that meant, except for the fact that when we were kids, we would go with him to work in the mornings in the summer, and he would basically drop us off, and we would go play golf on the golf course, go to the marina, go to the swimming pool, go play tennis go play racquetball. And at the end of the day, we'd go home with them. And I, I thought we lived at like this Navy country club, you know, I'm like, oh, this is great. And so, but basically I didn't understand. So like, probably I was in college. I'm like, oh, that's what my dad did. You yeah. know, so like that's where we got to go there and do that stuff. So um, he did that from that standpoint. Uh, my mom, she w was great. She gave up a lot to raise the three of us. Mm -hmm. And so she was at home with us, driving us everywhere to sports, helping us with school making sure we had our heads screwed on straight. I mean, it was, I mean, again, you don't realize stuff like that until you're, you're out of school or you start your own family and you realize, oh my gosh, like parents, moms, dads, aunts, uncles, you know, grandmas, grandma, like if they make that commitment to be available for the kids, like it is a massive commitment. Mm -hmm. And like, I didn't, I just had mom around, you know, like if I had a problem at school and I would come home upset, my mom was there to work through it. If I, had something happen, I couldn't get, you know, something right with school and grades or whatever, like mom was there to help me find somebody to help. Like she was just always there from that standpoint. And you completely take that for granted when it's there. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm the first to admit, I'm just like, oh, I had a, you know, one of my parents was always there for me. 
And so I am extremely appreciative, especially, I mean, again, when you, when you have your own kids and you start to look at the sacrifice that, that my mom made to give us that life was just an enormous sacrifice for her. Um, so I, I'm, it's like I get more appreciative the older I get. So, um, but yeah, I, I was very fortunate to, 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 have that, um, to have that support growing up. And, and what kind of values did they instill in you that you still carry with you today? Is there anything in particular that stands out? Oh, I, I mean, a lot, to be honest. I mean, I would say, I mean, in, integrity was one that I think they really, really emphasized. Like, make sure, you know, at the end of the day, when you lay your head on your pillow, that you're going to be okay with the decision that you made today. Not whether you got an A on the test, not whether you, you know, won that golf tournament or whatever, but like, how did you get there, mm. right? Did you, did you have to compromise anything that you are going to regret at the end of this? Or are you going to be okay with the decisions you made to get here? So, and I, I mean, so I guess maybe integrity is the right, the right word for that. I'm not sure there's probably a better one out there, but really at the end of the day, being able to lay your head down on the pillow and just take a deep breath and go, okay, if I'm going to be painfully honest with myself and I'm going to just not try to be something and I'm not going to try to make anything up, if I'm going to be painfully honest with myself, can I sleep with the decisions that I made today? And were they the right decisions? And, you know, regardless of the results, like, like, did I make the right decisions today? So I would say that was, that was a big one. I mean, it wasn't like, Hey, did you get all A's? And that's the, the, the point. No, you know what? Maybe you got all B's and C's, but you made the right decisions to get to that point. Um, so it wasn't so much just a results based. It was definitely the process and how we got there was very, very important yeah. to, uh, to very nice. And okay, so you're you're into baseball. You want to be a baseball player when you when you get older. Um, when did you pick up your first golf club? Well, I picked up my first golf club, um, and I can't believe I'm telling the story. I think it's um, I think it's past the point where I you know liable for anything on this. But it was uh, I was probably twelve, maybe, and a buddy of mine his his parents had built a deck off the back of their home. Mm -hmm. And we were up there, the, the guardrails had not been built yet. And um, so it was like a deck, but there was no there was no guardrails. And there was an old golf club and some balls. And we decided for some reason it would be a good idea to try to hit a, a golf ball with a club off this deck. Oh, boy. Never mind that there's a neighborhood out there, right? Like, and we saw a street and we saw, we're like, oh, let's try to hit this. And I remember firing a golf ball and just having no concept of like, this is going to go somewhere. This is going to bounce. And, and golf balls aren't like a tennis ball or a baseball. They don't just stop. Like it's going to pick up speed when it hits the road. And I remember going, huh, that probably wasn't the best idea. Right. But I will say it felt really, really good to hit that golf ball. And so, um, you know, it was probably around that age. And then I, I you know, didn't really take it seriously till probably like the, the 14, 15 time frame where, you know, I started to actually like, Oh my gosh, like I really like this, you know, like I, I, I could fall in love with this. And then my sophomore year in high school, oh man, this is, this is the day I had just, uh, I had just made the varsity team as a sophomore. My dad was super proud. I was super excited, you know, like I was, I was playing, getting ready to, to start that season and as, as an underclassman. And then they switched the golf season to where it overlapped to baseball season. Mm -hmm. Cause I've been able, like my freshman year, you know, I was able to do both. And and then my sophomore year, and I went to my dad, 
And I said, dad, I said, I really um, think that I want to give up baseball for golf. Mm. And the look on his face, it was, he, he kind of paused, uh, like, like he was processing things that I had no idea to process. What was I 16, I guess, 15, 16, you know, like he was processing what had taken place for the last 12, 13 years of my life. Right. Like, you know, it was always baseball and stuff like that. And I say that and I'm like, I think, and he went, listen, he goes, if you want to do that, I will a hundred percent support you to do that. Just take some time and think about it and make sure that that's what you want to do. But if that's the decision you make, like I'm behind you, like I get it. And like that support, I mean, talk about parent support, you know, we talked about a little bit ago, like I look back at that now and I'm like, man, that was a hard decision for him. Like he'd invested and my mom had invested like a ton of time, energy, money into baseball. And I'm like, Hey, I want to give that up for golf. And he totally supported me, even though I know in his heart, he's like, no, I want him to keep playing baseball. But like deep down, he's like, you know what? Like it's gotta be my decision. And then, and then I just like went all in on golf. I mean, it was like, they, I could not practice enough. I could not play enough. I could not, like, I was just in love with this sport. And, and my dad saw that, but I remember like my senior year in high school, he's like, man, he goes, when you gave up baseball, he goes, I thought to myself, I can't sit in the stands and like eat a hot dog and watch you at a match. Like I got to walk around. He goes, there's way better concession programs at baseball stadiums. There are. He's like, didn't you even think of me in that process? You were teasing me, obviously. Um, but you know, I mean, he, he could tell that I loved it and that that was where my heart was. That was where my passion was. And I, I mean, again, as I get older and I have my own kids and I see stuff that they're passionate about, it's like, wow, you know, am I going to be able to, to do that to my kids and support them the same way? Like, my dad supported me if it's something, you know, at the time kind of crazy that I was like, Hey, this is what I want to do. But yet he went all in and totally supported me and gave me every resource he possibly could, you know, mm. to help me out. But, um, that was, uh, my sophomore year in high school was a pretty pivotal moment. And, uh, I would say my, my development and my, and the path that I went on from golf from there. Very cool. I have to ask because I forgot to, but what position did you play in baseball? Oh, I was a pitcher. Really? Loved it. I mean, I, I mean, from, I probably was on the on the on the path to Tommy John by the time I was eighteen. I mean, I just threw and threw and yeah. threw and threw. So um, yeah, no, that's what I loved. I mean, I I, I loved uh, absolutely loved it, but uh, have zero yeah. regrets. I would say that love that phase of my life, but zero regrets. Kind of taking that uh, taking that turn uh, my sophomore year. Okay, and w- when you were a kid and, and playing golf, I mean, you. you- mentioned high school did you play like with your your father your brothers anybody you know that that you played with that brings up like childhood memories or was it just uh all through scholastic sports no i remember my brother uh teeing up his ball in the bunker to get a better lie and then i caught him and he's like hey what do you mean i didn't do that you know, like he would get in my head, Derek, like you would not believe. And the, and like I would make a five on a hole. I'd be like, what are you making? He's like, oh, I made a four. Like he would just needle me in ways that he knew that I would just absolutely. So like, but I mean, obviously it was it was fun. It was family. And like to have a sport where, you know, I could play with my dad, my brother, my sister. Like, I mean, and, and she didn't really play, but it was like they would go out there. Like it, it was just this generational family sport that – everybody could kind of participate in. Mm. And so, I mean, I, I do have some fun memories in my dad. I remember <laughs> Benita Vista golf club, right? He would come home from work. My gosh, I tortured my poor father. He would come home from work. I'd be like, all right, dad, let's go play, you know? And so we would get over to Benita Vista at like 5.30 for the twilight rate. 
you know, and play seven, eight, nine, ten holes, whatever it was. And there was this, the first hole was a dogleg left. It, it went to the left and there was a road right there that ran parallel to this dogleg left. And my poor dad would get out in his work clothes, you know, and like, just be like, all right, let's go. And he's, you know, been at a desk all day and he's trying to loosen up. And I've been like beating balls for two hours, you know, and then and we go, he would hit it onto that road probably eight out of 10 times. I mean, on the, the first hole, he'd hit this hook, you know, over the road and at Bonita Vista on number one, I'll never forget that. Um, and, uh, but it was, you know, memories like that, I would say are great. And then you get into like the high school matches and, and stuff like that, that kind of, you know, prepared you for competitive golf. And, uh, you know, there's some great things there that, uh, you know, lots of fun memories. I mean, I grew up playing on the course, you know, where the U S open is going to be like Torrey Pines was one of our courses. That's where we had like all of our state matches and, and stuff like that. So I grew up playing uh, in Torrey Pines South, Torrey Pines North and, you know, um, uh, just, you know, some great courses in Southern California. So, um, but a lot of fun family memories from, from the game. Very good. And I have to ask, are you a fan of the movie Caddyshack? So here, the parts, well, I would say this, it depends on the mood and who I'm with. Like yeah. if I'm by myself watching, I'm like, you know, sometimes, but then if there's a group that we're like on and you, and you laugh, I mean, it, it's obviously, it's part of our culture, right? You yeah. know, I mean, it's, I mean, everybody, you know, knows so many lines from that movie. And uh, so it's, it, it's pretty funny. Um, you know, I mean, like, like I think of Bill Murray in that movie and his character, you know, and then the first time I met Bill, when he came to play in the pro-am, I will say that that was the movie I had in my head, you know, and I'm like, that guy's made like 197 films, like really good films. And like, really like, that's the one that I'm going to think of, you know, with him. And I'm like, oh, I wanted to apologize, but all, you know, so like, it's funny how Caddyshack kind of weaves its way in and out of my life at various points. But um, yeah, no, it's a, it, that was a pretty uh, iconic movie, obviously for the game and our culture. But uh, again, that's like we talked about earlier. There's sometimes there's those movies where it's like, am I allowed to go back and rewatch that with my kids? I don't know. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> I know. I know. Same thing, right? Bad News Bears, Caddyshack. It's like, what's going on? <laughs> okay. So you played golf in, in high school and then, you know, it's time to, to go to college. I know you, you went to Auburn University. Was mm -hmm. golf like a decision to go there? Was that factored in? Uh, because I know you, you wanted to try out for the, 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 the golf team, right? Uh, you wanted to walk on to that. Yeah, it's so interesting. So I was not recruited to any D1 schools or anything like that. Like I, I grew up playing, or I'm sorry, I mean, in high school, like obviously I was playing competitive and things like that. I had a, I had a chance to play at a really small school in San Diego. Um, you know, like it, it was nothing big. Like, I mean, not UCLA, it's Queen Mac. I mean, like it was a small school in San Diego, but we got to know the coach through, through high school matches and stuff like that. And I, um, I, I, so I was excited about that, but there was something about it that didn't settle. Like I wanted to go, I didn't realize this, but I, I really, really wanted to go away to school. Mm. You know, I grew up in San Diego, but I wanted to see different parts of the country. I wanted to see different things. And so, um, I ended up long story short, I ended up uh, knowing some people that went to Auburn in, uh, in Alabama and I went there. So I didn't go for golf to go to go. But I, in the back of my mind, I was like, I wonder if I'm good enough to play at a D one school. Mm -hmm. Like I knew that I started, you know, quote unquote late for competitive golf. You know, me kind of making the switch my sophomore year in high school isn't really like the time that be like, Hey, yeah, let's pick up a sport and let's try to get a scholarship. You know? So I wasn't thinking scholarship by any means, but I definitely thought that I had um, the game to try out. Mm. So I go my freshman year, I go to Auburn 
and I try to walk on. And there were like three guys on the team that year that ended up going to play on the PGA Tour later. So like, I mean, the SEC schools just have stacked teams. I mean, that's just how it works in golf. And I remember, I'll never forget this coach, Mike Griffin. I walked to the first tee and there was, I don't know, a dozen of us that were trying to walk on. And he looks at us and he goes, boys, you're going to have to beat somebody that I am paying to go to school here today. Good luck. Oh, wow. Oh, that was a great motivational speech. You know, there's an 18-hole tryout like that's what it was 18 holes and then he'll talk to you afterwards or he won't and so i remember i was one over par on the uh like the 14th or 15th hole i was one over par and i was on this par five and i we knew we had to be under par for coach to talk to us even that day on the 18 holes so i was one over i'd hit a great drive i was a seven iron out from this par five so I'm standing there trying to hit this par five and two. I'm waiting for the green to clear and I start thinking. I'm like, okay, so if I can eagle this, I'm gonna be one under. There was a short par four, um, a short par three, and then a par four to finish up after that. I'm like, if I can get to one under here, I can probably keep it to even. Maybe I pick up another birdie. And I was like, okay, worst case scenario, I get on the screen in two, and then I two putt for birdie. I get back to even, then I need to slip in a birdie on the way through through here. So like I'm like thinking through all this as I'm waiting for the green to clear. Well, <clears throat> to the left of this hole, there's a road. And to the left of the road, there is the Auburn Opelika, like the small little airport. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you could kind of, you saw the planes land over there and things like that. So let's just say there's a lot of trouble left. So I'm standing there with my seven iron and I, and I get ready to hit. I'm like thinking about all this stuff. I'm going to walk on. I'm going to do this. I'm so excited. I hit my ball. It goes left of the fairway over the fence, left of the road, and basically lands on like the airport property. Oh, wow. And I'm like, huh, okay, so I'm one, I'm two in, I'm three out, and I'm hitting my fourth shot. I'm like, okay, I can still keep this together, I can pull it together. Derek, another one in the same spot, over the fence, over the road, over the thing. So I put two <laughs> out of bounds into the airport runway, end up making like a double bogey and finish like four over, and coach would never talk to me, and that uh. was like, you know, like that was the, I would say that was the end of me trying to walk on my freshman year. And I'm like, you know what? That's it. I'm like, okay. I gave it a run, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of, you know, let golf go for a year and a half, two years. But then I, I picked it up again my senior year and had a bug that uh, that I, I just thought I could do. But anyway, that, that, that was my walk-on experience that um, I still, to this day, every time I pick up my seven iron, I'm like, we're going to get along? We're going to get along today? Yeah. Oh man, the way you put it, 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 it doesn't sound like a crushing experience, but it, it, I mean, at the time, was it like, did you, were you just like, oh man, I'm never picking up a club again? Well, it wasn't so much. I'm never picking up a club again. It was okay. I gave it a run from a competitive thing. Cause it wasn't just one swing, right? Like I had gotten there. I had said, okay, if I'm going to, you know, commit to this, but then and we only had an 18 hole trial, you know, it wasn't like a tournament. Usually tournaments you can, you know, go three, four days, you can absorb a shot. Like we had an 18 hole tryout and that was it. Mm. And I was like, okay, you know what? G- collegiate golf for me is done. Like that was what it was. So not so much crushing more so as, okay, golf is, all right, I'm not gonna be playing golf in college. Like, so that's what it was. So, and then I went on, you know, and had had a great time, did a lot of other stuff, you know? I mean, when you're a college athlete, like it takes over your world. And I saw that with a lot of my friends who were athletes at Auburn. And, you know, I just had a different college experience. It was great. I don't regret any of it. I had a blast, but I, I, I knew I'm like, okay, college golf is not in my, in the cards for me. Yeah. What did you um, go to school to study? What was your major? 
Well, so I didn't. I don't know what I went to school to study. So let me clarify: as a freshman in college, I don't. I had no idea what I wanted to study. Yeah. Does anybody? <laughs> I, I, I literally remember thinking, "I'm like, I'm not qualified to make this decision. Like, I need somebody to help me make this decision on what I want yeah. to." So, I mean, obviously, you know, your first couple of years are, are very. Um, you know, you're taking a lot of generic classes. You know, a lot of a lot of people are, and so I was, you know, exposed to a lot of stuff. And I would say, you know, my my sophomore year, when you have to start to really narrow in on what you want your field of study. I remember sitting down looking at the book of majors, you know, and this is when things were paper and they weren't online, like actually holding the book and like flipping through the pages going, okay, interesting, interesting. And looking through the majors and I'm like, I took a pencil and I'm like, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. And then I ended up after like crossing everything out, I ended up in like basically journalism, mass communications, political science, like, you know, liberal arts, you know, kind of focus. And so I was like, huh, okay. So I kind of like circled that. And then, you know, fast forward, I ended up becoming a, um, uh, a poli sci minor, mass communications major, you know, radio, television, and film kind of that, yeah. you know, that I just kind of gravitated towards stuff like that. Like I loved, you know, getting in front of the class and doing presentations or public speaking or stuff like it just, it was stuff that I enjoyed. Yeah. And I remember just going, I don't know what I'm going to do with this as far as the job goes, you know, like, cause I don't, I don't know that I see myself, you know, going into some of the careers that are beyond this, but all I know right now is like, I enjoy studying this right now. Uh, and I just kind of, you know, kind of was taking it one step at a time and, and doing that. So it was MassCom, PoliSci um, were uh, kind of my areas of focus. And that's why I ended up uh, with my degree in. But it's kind of funny, right? You know, I think Steve Jobs said it, you, you don't really see things until you connect the dots from the past mm. that lead you to where you are. And you think about your mass comm experience and television and all that. And yeah. that's that's definitely a part of, of where you are today, which we'll, we'll get to. But um, it is kind of interesting. I'm thinking about it in my head because, yeah. you know, all of the, the media relations and things you folks do with, with the tournament. But um, OK, so you're in college. You don't make the team. Um, but am I getting this right? You go on after college to play professional golf. Well, that makes total sense. If you can't make a D1 team, you should turn pro. Like I give that advice to every young player. What are you talking about? How does this happen? Tell me about this. So this happens. Oh man, how does this happen? Okay. So it, it was one of those things where, so I don't make the team. I kind of, you know, quote unquote, give it up <clears throat> for a year. I'm sorry, for a couple years. My senior year in college, I'm like, man, okay, what's the next step, right? Like, what am I going to do next? And and I had enough, I would say, you know, people around me that, you know, like, hey, you know, what do you want to do? What what type of work do you want to go into? You know, like, what's your passion? I kept hearing that. Like, what do you want to do? You know, like, yeah. and, and like every time I'd be like, well, you know, I'd come up with some answer. But like deep down, I'm like, man, I really still want to try to play golf. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, that's kind of un unfortunate because... I didn't make the team. I haven't been playing competitively. I'm super rusty, you know, and I, but like really when I asked myself that question, like, what do I want to do? I'm like, man, I want to try to compete. I really want to try to play. And I'm like, what am I going to do with that? So my parents are still in San Diego. You know, I'm getting ready to finish up school and I just start going out. Literally, I remember being in the field at Auburn with my bag of, of golf balls, just hitting balls in the field, like working on my yardages and then going out and then picking up all the balls and coming back and hitting. I'm like, oh man, this is what I want to do. But I had a very, you know, sobering moment of like, how the heck am I going to do this? Like one, I'm not ready to turn pro, 
but like, how am I going to create this world where I actually want to give myself a chance mm-hmm. to play professionally? And so I kind of had it mapped out in my head. I'm like, okay, here's what I would have to do. I need access to a golf course. I need money. I need that, you know, so like, I was like, all right, well, I need to work part-time at a course on the weekend so that I can practice and play for free all day. I need some type of job that I can work at night so that I can have all day to practice and play. So I was like, all right, I'm going to I'm gonna have to have two jobs where, I, you know, probably I'm going to have to wait tables at night, and then I'm going to have to work part-time at a golf course on Saturdays so that, that I can have all this access that I need. So I knew I needed to practice, you know, 40 hours a week to actually have a chance at this thing. So I remember calling my dad. I was getting ready to graduate, and I said, Dad, and, and here's what I should have done. I should have explained the vision to him first, but I didn't. I just started with the, the end, what, and I said, Dad, I want to turn pro. And he said, in what? <laughs> Forget that. I said, okay, sorry, Dad. I should have told you what I was really thinking. So I went through the whole plan. He's like, oh, oh that sounds great. He goes, I'm all for it. Because he was, he was crushed that I gave it up after my freshman year of college. He's like, yeah. you should have tried to walk on again your sophomore year. And I was like, no, Dad, I want to focus on school and things like that. And so he was all for it. He just thought, okay, I didn't realize you were still holding on to that. So I ended up, I gave myself like, uh, I'm, I'm going to mess up the exact time, but maybe around, call it six months, where I was working at the golf course on the weekends. I was waiting tables at night. And then I would get to the golf course at like six. And I would practice to like three, go home, shower, and then go to work. I did that literally putting in, you know, 40 hours of work on my on my game um really getting to the point where i felt like i was ready um i had saved up a little money um moved down to florida played on the mini tours um for again i mean it was i'm trying to think the exact time maybe maybe a year off and on um a little bit less than that and i mean i made derek i made about 200 dollars over about like a six month stretch Oh, wow. And so when you do the math on that, that's yeah. really not something <laughs> to make a living on. But sure. I will say this. I mean, it was great. I, I mean, there were, I mean, guys down there that were playing on the mini tours at the time, Bubba Watson, Boo Weekly, uh, Duffner was out there. I mean, Heath Slocum, like there were a ton of guys that ended up making on tour that were there. So I got to see how my game compared against them. And when you do that, <laughs> you realize <laughs> Oh, got it. That's what it takes. You know, and it wasn't just an 18 hole match. Like, you know, I give it my best and then my best against them, like, wasn't going to make any money. I was like, oh, okay. Like, I gave it a run. Like, I literally put everything I had after it, gave it my all. It was my dream to do that. And you know what? Like, that doesn't haunt me. Like, I never, ever, ever have to sit back and go, Oh man, what if, Right. what if, you know, like that, that, that doesn't haunt me. Like I, I had somebody tell me one time, they said, uh, the pain of failure is way easier to deal with than the pain of regret, right? Yep. Regret is a pain that will haunt you forever. Pain is something that you can deal with very differently. I had no idea what he was talking about at the time. I'm like, yeah, whatever, you know, but like, as I get older and like, that is a moment in time where I can point to and say, you know what? I am so glad I had the pain of failure through that experience rather than the pain of regret. Because I promise you, I would still be wondering today if I could have made it, if I could have done it, if I could have, yeah. you know, but I, I, I threw everything I had after it. I didn't make it. And that was that. And it was a great experience. I would never trade it for anything. Um, spent a lot of money chasing a dream. A lot of people made donations, so to speak, to help me chase it. <laughs> keep you going. Yeah, to keep you going. But uh, it, it was a great experience, and uh, I, I don't, I don't, 
I don't regret it at all. I don't regret it yeah. at all. No, that is so true. I mean, trying something and not succeeding is so much better than wondering if you could have done it, right? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. it, regret is, is, is brutal. Think does not work out. You then go on to become an instructor at um, Robert Trent Jones Golf Trail Academy um, of Golf. What what was that experience like on the business side? So you you go from playing on the course and now you're you're going into the business aspect. So it was one of those things. Where I kind of had this the, this point where I had to be like, okay, you know, all right, I I'm, I'm done playing golf, trying to play golf professionally. Like what like where am I? Kind of one of those like assessment moments in your life. Like okay, well, I love the game. I love being around it. I'm not going to play it for a living. Like if I want to stay around the game, like what other options are there? And it was to your point, the PGA of America. Um, I went back to school for like a year and a half to become a, a class A PGA professional. And basically what that is, is it's the, it's the gateway to get into the golf industry and actually be a golf professional, not a professional golfer. So, you know, running a facility, being a GM at a club, running instruction, um, you know, uh, organizations running, um, academies, you know, things like that, running food and beverage operations. So it's the business of golf. <clears throat> so I um, thought, okay, you know what? I want to get into the business side of golf. So I got my teaching credentials and I went to work for the academy, like you mentioned, and I enjoyed it. I did it for about, ugh, gosh, what was it? Maybe about three years or so. And uh, maybe a little over three years. I, I liked it, but I didn't love it. You know, I'm like, okay, I, I enjoy doing this. I love working with the juniors. I love giving lessons. I mean, golf is such a, a, a unique thing. I mean, uh, you know, you can spend time with CEOs who actually want to spend time with you when you're actually teaching them a lesson. Whereas if you're trying to sell something to a company, they're like, oh, okay, come on in, you know. Right. Like actually, you get people in these amazing industries that wanted to see you, that wanted to spend time with you, that were actually open to what you had to say. And it was a very, a very interesting um interesting experience taught, but then I, I realized, okay, I don't see myself being an instructor the rest of my life. I don't see myself, you know, running a club the rest of my life, like, but I still want to stay in the game. What, what is there, you know, how can I stay in this, in this game? You know, do, do I be like an equipment rep or a manufacturer? Like, like, where do I go with this? And I remember when I was working at Robert Trent Jones, that's a string of about, uh, at the time, it was like six or seven golf courses throughout the state of Alabama. I think they're up to, my gosh, I think 10 or 11 now. But at the time, it was a handful of courses, and they had different professional events come to their courses. Um, one of them was like an LPGA Tour event. Another one was, at the time, the Nationwide Tour Championship, Buy.com, Nike Tour, <laughs> you know, what's the Corn Ferry Tour now? So... I was working at these golf courses and professional events were coming in and I was so fascinated with how they did that. You would see the marketing for, you know, two weeks in advance show up around your community. Then at the golf course, you would see all these huge trailers, you know, start to show up six weeks, eight weeks out to build all the infrastructure. And then you would see the players get into town and you would see all the, the radio advertising and the ticket sales. And then the, you know, I had the, the, the experience to be working at these golf courses when the event teams came in and something in me triggered going, Oh, this is what I want to be a part of. Like I am fascinated by the, it's so complex and it's so all these pieces moving together. So I went to work for um, the, the Bruno event team at the time and just fell in love with the event industry. You know, it's so every day is different. 
from like, I mean, there's not one point in time that's the same. Like one month you're doing this, the next month you're doing this, the next month you're doing this. And everything culminated to an event that you got to see and point to going, that's what we built. That's what we did. That's what we worked on all year. And it came to a head. And then when it was over, you got to tear it apart, break it down. I mean, literally and metaphorically, you know, and what do we like? What do we not like? And guess what? We're all going to work together again. So like there was, there was a, almost a competition feel, but there was also this very direct correlation between what we did and then how our work product showed up. Um, and then when you, when you combine that with being able to do that and see, you know, what you work on to come to a head and then with the PGA tour to have that and then have there be this charitable impact that is directly associated with how hard you worked, how well you did your job. And then you, you get to meet the charities in the community that benefit from the event. Like it's just, I, I honestly, Derek, I don't know what else I would do. Like I, I love every single piece of, of what we're doing here and, or, you know, what, what we were doing then, I'm sorry. I know I, I know I jumped ahead like 17 years, but <laughs> you know what we did, but I was just fascinated with the event industry and, and especially the PJ tour and, and the, in golf and kind of what the end results were. So, um, but that's, that's when I fell in love with the event industry and I have been a part of it ever since from that point. Very good. Before we get to the tournament of today and what you're working on, let's talk more about you as a person. Take us, take us through your daily routine, not as a tournament director, um, but what kind of habits does, does Nathan group have? Are you up early? What time do you get up in the morning? Well, so uh, before I say this, I, I have always been, uh, somebody who loves getting up early in the morning. I mean, from like the time that I was a kid to, you know, when I had a paper route to the time in college, I was always the the, the kid who would go to bed early and wake up early. So <clears throat> I just need to say that, that like I get up at four. I love getting up in the morning. Uh, I, I feel like it's the only part of the day that I can actually truly quote unquote own from the standpoint mm -hmm. that I'm setting my agenda. So my alarm goes off at four. Um, have to feed the dogs, have to let them out to pee, and I have to feed the guinea pigs because they scream. If you've ever walked by a hungry <laughs> guinea pig, they make the loudest noises. So the dogs okay. get fed, the guinea pigs get fed, um, and then I have to have about 24 ounces of coffee every morning. Like I live off of good coffee, love it. Um, I, I am an absolute, we could spend an hour and a half just talking about coffee. But okay. um, I'll have coffee and then I will uh, then I'll go and work out um, from about five to six. And then I'll usually be, you know, online seven, six, forty five, seven. Um, I definitely think that my my mornings are my my best times. Um, so I guess if you were to say, what's your habit? I mean, that's that's pretty much my habit. I mean, I love having a bowl of oatmeal with strawberries in my coffee every morning. Like that is like, I am addicted to that. And then that'll probably run for about six, eight months. And then I'll have three eggs and a banana and that'll run for like six months. And then <laughs> I, I have some diet restriction issues. I'm, I have some food allergies. So I have to be, you know, kind of very, that's why I'm very like segmented with my food, but um, no mornings are great. But I swear if you call me after like eight 30 at night, I am useless. I am an absolute waste of space. People know that everybody who works with me knows that, Oh, don't call them at night. It's not going to go well. Like you're not going to get a good decision. You're going to get um, you're going to get a very tired voice. And uh, I run my hands through my hair at night. My hair gets big. I, I just don't look good. Like it, it's <laughs> so I always tell people, like, call me at 6 a.m. versus 6 p.m. You're going to get yeah, better yeah. soon. So, I mean, personally, that's, uh, you know, that's kind of I would say that's my, my routine. I'm great in the morning. Not so good at night. <laughs> 
Okay, and and you have a lot going on. I mean, I know like what it takes to put a tournament on and be behind the scenes and all of that stuff. How do you like? What do you do to disconnect from that? Do you just turn the phone off, just close the email? I mean, how do you break away? Uh, I guess the short answer is you don't. Um, so I would say the last the last ninety days headed into a tournament. You need to understand, and people who want to get into this industry need to understand, it, it doesn't shut off those last three months. And then the last two months, it gets worse. And the last month, it gets even worse. And the last, you know, two, three weeks, like, you, you have to be willing to turn yourself over to everything because there's just not enough time in the day. Like, it just doesn't work. And and honestly, there's a lot of people who get into this industry that that will intern with us. They'll be like, oh, there's, I don't. I don't want this life. Like, there's no way I'm going to do this. And that's totally great. And there's other people that say, oh, we get it. <clears throat> you know, this is how the event industry works. But it does ebb and flow, right? Like the last 90 days leading into it, you just, everything starts to creep uh, in May. You know, the last eight weeks, it's, you know, you work on weekends. And it's just, it's constant. And you just, you can't, you can't turn it off. But post-tournament, we... I mean, our staff knows this. We try very, very hard to have forced, kind of what you're talking about, forced breakaway time, right? Like, hey, here's our hours. We're reduced hours. We're not going to bug you during this time. Like, we try very hard in, you know, July. There's a lot to finish up. But like August, early September, we try very hard to have some very clean barriers. Hey, we're going to let you recuperate physically, mentally, emotionally, because what you just went through was a lot, and you need to be aware of it. Um, that you need to recover. And so we try really hard to put some parameters around things post-event to give people the chance to, to recover. And I mean, we give, we give a similar, in a normal year, obviously this year's not normal, in a normal year, we'll give a speech to the interns and the staff about that 90 day out window saying, get ready, it's gonna get crazy, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna start getting less sleep, you're gonna start feeling more stress, you're gonna do this. And I, I keep reminding people that, and then when, uh, you know, kind of after, Memorial Day, when typically we're at the golf course and everybody's in trailers and, you know, we have 10 interns and 14 staff and we get the team together and then I give them a different speech. I say, all right, you're going to cry and it's okay because your body is just going to be at its end, right? You're going to feel the stress, the pressure, the lack of sleep. You're going to be hungry and it's okay. This is a safe place. We have all cried in front of each other. Some sponsor is going to be very upset about something and it's going to affect you. And we basically try to train people like, look, you need to take a deep breath. You need to be able to turn away. You need to be able to take two, three seconds to compose yourself, but you're just going to be spent. You know, it's going to be like you've played an entire season of a sport football and you're expected to perform at your best when you're most exhausted, you're most tired. So it's a, it's a very interesting cycle is what it is. But to, to unplug, I mean, I would say post-tournament to unplug, I mean, I, you know, I just love stuff with, with the family. I mean, I'm, I'm big. We go, we'll go down to the beach, we'll take walks at night, we'll have ice cream. We will, you know, we, like I said, we have a couple dogs. I mean, it's just we, we find ways to unplug. I think everybody has kind of very different ways to do it. But how do you unplug going into the tournament? I would say the short answer is you don't. <laughs> You no, gotta be, no. You got to be ready for what it's going to do to you. Yeah. No, it's intense for sure. Let's get to today. Your tournament director of, of the Travelers Championship. For those who are not familiar with what a tournament director does, can you can you kind of give us the elevator speech of what your responsibilities are? Sure. Uh, so I would say ultimately, big picture, my responsibilities are um, I uh, am the executive director of a foundation. 
that owns the rights to Connecticut's PGA Tour event. So what we do is we're a nonprofit that owns the rights to, to run a PGA Tour event for Connecticut. Now to run a PGA Tour for Connecticut, you need a couple things. You need a, a title sponsor. We obviously have travelers. You need to have the sanction of the PGA Tour to actually look at what you're doing to make sure you are uh, doing everything you need to do to be an officially sanctioned PGA Tour event. <clears throat> you need a golf course to be able to host the event. And, uh, and then I have a board of directors, obviously, that I kind of answer to. So ultimately, what do I do? I have to make sure the PGA Tour is thrilled with us to be able to give us their sanction as a PGA Tour event so that they can say, yes, we are excited to have a PGA Tour event in Connecticut. I need to make sure we're doing everything to make travelers happy as a title sponsor. Are they getting everything they need out of the event or from a, you know, all their whole list of things they're willing to sign on to be the title sponsor of an event? Do they have everything they need? You know, does the host facility where we host the event, do they have everything they need? So, and am I, am I, you know, doing everything for my board that needs to be done? So I guess big picture, I need to make sure that all those entities are happy with what we're doing so that we can all do this together. Cause I mean, I couldn't go off and run a PGA tour event by myself. Like, right. I need, I need all those entities to say that. So big picture, what's my job is to make sure the tour, the title, the host organization, the host facility, that they are all happy with what we're doing. Now, when you break down what it takes to make all those different entities happy, it's there's obviously a lot. And there's a lot of different things. And we have a staff that's very, very good at finding out what those different things are. And our team, uh, I mean, I'm so lucky to have to have this team. I mean, Tara Gerber, Kevin Harrington, they've been with me since 06, 05, 06. So they, actually 04. So I've had a senior team with me my entire run here. And I think that is something that it, I don't think people get that in certain positions, you know, to have a, a team that is together for that long, it's kind of unheard of, to be honest. And so the fact that they have stuck with me, stuck with us, been a part of this uh, for that long has been, I would say, a direct reason why you've seen the type of success that we've had is, uh, is, is being able to have your team together that long. So um but that's in a, in a big picture. That's, I would say, what, what does a tournament director do? That's that's what I think a tournament director does. Somebody, somebody else has a different opinion. Of and, and it's true what you say about the team aspect of it. It's almost like a band or like a, a professional sports team, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody's doing their part to make everything um, successful. But, you know, this tournament has had such an incredible history in Connecticut. I mean, when you go way back to the, the G, GHO days and, yeah. and Cannon and Buick and all those other folks, um, when, when you folks came on board, what was what was the pivot or what did you guys come in and say you were going to do differently or how were you going to make this tournament successful to what it is today? Oh, um, man, that's an interesting question. So I would say to your point there, there was a history with this event when I got up here in 05. I mean, the history of this event is known around the tour, right? I mean, it's been here since 52. Uh, the community had a very strong support from the community. Um, but what's interesting is if you look into the early 2000s, I mean, the, the PGA Tour just started to change. I mean, the, the money that had started to come into the tour from the television rights, like what Tiger did for the PGA Tour and, and the, the expectations now from a global standpoint when it came to, OK, they're selling global television rights deals for a lot of money. So what's the expectation on what each of these events around the country need to be, what do they need to look like? Um, what's the expectation of the players, their families, the caddies, the coaches, the agents, like things started to change. And, and 
I think one of the things we saw this this moment when I don't know if it was a moment, but this just this philosophical shift that we had to figure out who we needed to be. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. I think there was, you know, decades where the tournament could build what it wanted to be. And then when the tour came in, they got to experience what the tournament wanted it to be. We had to shift when, especially when Travelers came in as title, they, they said, okay, who does the tour want us to be? What do the players want us to be? What do the broadcast networks want us to be? Like, like where are things going? And we almost had to shift not so much on, hey, who we wanted to be, but we need to get an understanding of what the expectations are out there of what everybody else wants us to be. And then can the two of those mesh together? And Travelers came at it with the perspective of they looked at the tournament like they look at their customers. What, what product do we need to produce as an insurance company for our customers to get the best you know, service that they need? And they looked at it from that perspective. They said, okay, our tournament is going to be an extension of who we are. Who are our customers? Well, our customers are the players, the media, the bot. And, and they brought that mentality. And then they said, okay, well, what do our customers need? What do they want? How can we get our customers what they need and want? And so it was a, it was just a shift in like how we looked at the mm. tournament. The tournament wasn't so much, I say this, that I say this often, the tournament wasn't so much ours, the tournament was theirs. Now you look at who the they are and the they was, you know, a dozen different people. But if we look at the tournament as somebody else's and we want it to be something for them, how do we know what they want? And, and so that was a real change. And then what you see now with the, with the tournament is a product of, us going out asking people what they need the tournament to be. And again, I just think it, it was a shift in just where the tour was going, the global pressure to, you know, be a professional sports franchise. I mean, it's a very competitive market when it comes to, you know, so many different pieces of, of professional golf. So I would say that was a big philosophical shift for us. And we still try to hold to that. We try to hold to the, hey, everybody out there is our customer. What does our customer want? And do we have the right product that our customer wants? And then we build stuff from there. Okay, so the the tournament is happening this year, right? Last year was, Mm -hmm. you know, COVID, strange time, but seems like things are back on track. There's a new sense of uh, optimism and and the new normal um, Mm -hmm. emerging out of all of this. What's the future from your point of view? And by that, what I mean is where would you like to take it and what do you see as the opportunities? So I think, well, to your point, I think this year is a bridge, right? It's, 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 we're not quite back to 19, but we're definitely not 20. So we're kind of building this bridge back to this experience um, that I think our fans, you know, will, will, will start to recognize and say like, oh yes, okay, things are on their way back. Um, but I, I think we have a pretty unique situation up here. We have some of the best fans and crowds in the game, like some of the most energetic from a gallery size standpoint. I mean, not every market can offer that to um, the PGA Tour, to the broadcast networks, you know, stuff like that. And so really making sure that um, we really do everything we can to enhance to an, an international audience who we are as Connecticut. And what I mean by that is w- when the broadcast comes on and you're there broadcasting to you know, millions of people in hundreds of countries, what are we saying about our state? What are we saying about our region? And are we saying, hey, this is what this region does when it's given a chance with a professional sports franchise. Look at the crowd engagement. Look at the corporate support. Look at the backbone there is here in this region to support a professional sports franchise, right? Like that resonates with people watching this broadcast going, 
Oh, hey, and you never know what owner, what organization, what other professional sports league is going, you know what, we want to expand in another market. What's the greater Hartford region, you know, like, oh my gosh, did you see what they did with the Travelers Championship? Uh huh. Let's look at, you know, do we want to expand into that market? Like, so making sure that we take our region with this event and on a global scale, show the world what we do with a professional sports franchise, like that is going to outlive me, like all of us, right? And if we have an NFL team here someday, or if we have a hockey team back here again someday, or if we, you know, have whatever in the NHL, the, the NBA, whatever, like we look at that as going, okay, we have an opportunity to continue to make this thing look very, very big and very, very cool and show the world what our region does. So when you ask me like long-term where I'm thinking, I'm like, look, we feel the, the weight and the responsibility to make sure we are doing everything we can with this event and make it as, as powerful as possible from an economic impact standpoint, from a, a talent retention and recruitment standpoint. And then, you know, big picture as far as, um, you know, potentially expanding to another professional sports team at some point. So I would say that's a, a lot of the stuff that we think big picture, making sure everything we're doing on the small scale feeds into that big picture message that, uh, that we like to like to think we're hopefully playing a part of. We, we touched on it earlier, this being a, a bridge year and, you know, one of the worst pandemics of our time. Um, can you take us through your thoughts when COVID became a reality and turned the, the world upside down? What, what went through your mind uh, as this was unfolding? And, you know, it was like, oh, boy, what do we do? I mean, it was obviously everybody kind of saw what was unfolding, right? And I think there were a lot of questions like, wow, what are we going to do about it? How is it going to impact us? I mean, we were in June. We were outdoors. So there was like all these questions going like, how is this going to change? I remember when they, when they canceled March Madness, I remember sitting there going, oh, okay. Like this is, this is going to hit us in a different way than, because I mean, I knew it was going to impact us, but for whatever reason, that moment, I mean, because obviously I think everybody knows, I mean, how much is involved in the, in, in the, in the TV deals and the revenue. I mean, like March, man, like the, the business machine that that is. What I remember from my perspective in sports, when they officially announced that, I went, okay, this is bigger than like all of us from the standpoint of we got to figure, like, what, what are we going to do? And then the tour, when they canceled the tour a couple weeks later, what was it? It was a player's championship. I think in the middle of the players, they shut it down. Um, everybody just kind of took a deep breath going, okay, we have a lot of contingency plans that we have planned for. We didn't have this one planned for, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't have the potential of a canceled event. I mean, you have the potential of a canceled event for weather and you can plan for that and you have prep work and you have different things that you can do to you know, kind of to mitigate risk on that. But to have one, an event totally canceled months in advance or, hey, what version of the tournament could we have within some of these guidelines? Like no crowds, TV only, stuff like that. Like these are things we had never done. And I would say we are pretty good at trying to think through all the different scenarios that could impact your tournament. Hey, what if this, what if this? Like we play the what if game all the time. And how are you gonna plan for that? How are you gonna do that? This was not a what if that we had planned for. And so we all kind of rolled up our sleeves and like, okay, let's run through these scenarios. Like we're event planners, this is what we do what if X, Y, and Z, but all the, all the, um, you know, um, just protocols were unknown, right? Like how do you move around? How do you land and get from an airport to a courtesy car? How do you, 
feed somebody? How do you deliver a shirt? How do you sign a scorecard? Like everything was evaluated, you know? I mean, what's the alcohol content of that hand sanitizer? How many touchless ones can you get? What's the, you know, uh, quality of that mask when it comes to X, Y, and Z? Like all of those things were just completely new to everybody. And then when we got to the place where the tour said, hey, do you want to be one of the first four events back? And, you know, no spectators. And, you know, can you guys pull that off? And, I mean, we jumped. I said, yes, you know, we want to be a part. We obviously, you know, travelers and and our town and local health and our board, everybody had to sign off on it. But we said, you know what? We, we do. We do want to be a part of this story of bringing sports back, you know, of like, hey, th- we can do some of these things. And, and the fact, kind of what I was referring to earlier, like to, to, to have our community be on the national stage when it comes to, hey, we were part of that. We were the third event back there. Um, I mean, we took that very seriously and we, we didn't want to have any regrets. You know, we didn't want to look back and be like, oh, we weren't safe or, oh, that was we did that too fast or whatever. We were definitely very conservative in what we um, the approach that we took. But everybody worked really, really hard to figure out a lot of things that we hadn't had any contingency plans for. So um, it was a pretty crazy experience to be a part of it. But uh, I feel like the team really did an incredible job. Um, Travelers was heavily involved in, in helping us from the standpoint of, hey, you know, what resources do you need to, to be able to make this work? And, you know, and uh, being a part of that was it was it was pretty I, I hope we never have to do it again. Let me say that. I'm glad that we did it. <laughs> but I really hope that that is never something that we are going to do again. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think everybody is. OK, so the tournament is happening this year. What what can people expect from the spectators to the sponsors? What What's happening this year? It's I will say this. I think people can expect to feel that energy that we have um, all come to have as part of the signature part of our event. Right. We in February, it was looking like we were going to have about five thousand people out. No structures, one ticket that we were going to sell. Things kept loosening up. You know, early April, we were able to change that and pivot. Now we have, you know, we have a quote unquote, little bit of hospitality, like a kind of a higher end ticket we can sell and then a general admission ticket. And there's going to be some structures now on 18 and we're looking at, you know, around 10,000 people a day. And, um, it is going to feel packed. Like it's going to feel the, you're going to feel the energy out there. You're going to feel mm-hmm. the excitement. You're going to feel it. Cause when you look at typically we had, you know, 50 skyboxes and all these corporate road tents and all these structures that just, it didn't work out this year. Companies couldn't commit, you know, to, to entertainment. They, you know, the restrictions on indoor versus outdoor. And then we have to make these decisions to build, you know, 90, 100 days before the tournament. So, you know, there's going to be like a modified experience. But all those people that used to be in those structures are now going to be on the golf course, moving around. People are going to get views that they've never had before of the golf course because, you know, usually there was a tent there. And now they're going to be able to see a different sight line, you know, and stuff like that. So, I'm excited for our fan, fans to be able to, one, just get out and be together. I think that's the biggest thing that people are looking forward to seeing and, and being a part of. But two, I mean, it's like I said, it's, it's, it's a march back to quote unquote normal. And you're going to feel that energy and you're going to hear the roars and the players get excited about it. And it's going to it's going to be something I, I have been here. What this is my 17th tournament? This is probably the one I'm most excited about. Because I know what we missed last year. I was standing there on 18 and Dustin put it in. There was no, you know, thunderous applause. People weren't going crazy. Like, I know what we missed. I know what the fans missed. And to be able to know that that's coming back, I am really, really excited for people to be able to experience that again. And you just mentioned you've been there 17 years. What 
in all of those years, and I'm sure there's a lot here, but what would you say that you are most proud of uh, being a part of this tournament? Oh, most proud of. Um, I guess I'd have to start with the, the charity number. I mean, it was a couple hundred thousand dollars, though, you know, kind of mid 2005 that it got to point when the tournament was having, you know, they were just generating different funds for charity. Um, and when we crested 2.1 million a couple years ago, like that was, I was really proud to be a part of that, you know, to see one, the growth of the tournament, but then also you can grow the tournament and you can grow the charitable impact to, to do that. Like that's again, to be able to do both of those things at the same time on a parallel path is I would say something that, that I'm most, most proud of. And honestly, Derek, when, when you're, when you're walking around the tournament and you see the look on people's faces that are residents here in Connecticut that are like, that are, that are proud of the event. And they're like, yeah, this is ours. You know, this is, this is what Connecticut does with sports, you know, like that. I am so happy to be a part of that. You know, that look on people's face that I can, that I, you know, me and my team can look at ourselves and say, Hey, you know what, because we are doing this and trying so hard because travelers is investing in the community and they're giving, you know, what they have to make this possible, like we're able to kind of help provide like that look on somebody's face. So I would say that's a, that's a big, that's a big piece of it to, to be able to have something that I think people are, are, are proud of in our state is, is something that's pretty cool to be a part of. Final question. It's a very open-ended one. Uh, any final words that you'd like to say or, or, or add? Man, you took me on a journey. So what do I give word? Like I had to fail miserably at, at trying to play professional golf how to tell your parents you want to turn pro and they won't know what you're talking about, how to wait tables. Like, like, what do you mean? Any parting words of advice? Um, <laughs> I, I would say this, I would say, uh, well, kind of on that, that, that theme one, don't be afraid to fail at stuff. Like, I mean, we failed at stuff. I, I mean, I failed at stuff personally, professionally, but it, I mean, something always came of it, you know? And I mean, don't be afraid to fail stuff. Like I'm going to go in and try to get fired. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. Right. I'm talking about there's new ideas. There's something you want to try like going about it in the right way, getting the support. But if it doesn't work out, I promise you, you learn something along the way, right? You learn something along the way to get even to that failure point. So I don't know, my, my, my last piece of advice, I guess what I would say with my, my parents, you know, like I said, what they raised me with is, you know, just be able to lay your head on your pillow at night, whether it's professionally or personally or whatever, and just have that very, very honest moment with yourself going, okay, am I okay with how I did what I did today. And if you can say yes to that, like you're gonna do some great stuff, you know? Like you're, you're gonna be able to walk around with your head high. You're gonna be able to be proud of the product that you put out there. You're gonna be able to have, you know, some, some good stuff. So I don't know, I didn't mean to get all Dr. Phil, but you know, that, that would be, that'd be my, my, my two cents. That is a great place to close. I wanna thank you so much, Nathan. This has been an inspiring conversation. I feel like we could we could go on for like two, three hours. So maybe in the future, there'll be a part two somehow um, af after all of this. But um, if people want to follow you in the tournament, I mean, obviously the website, travelerschampionship.com, um, where yeah. else can they can they find you? Uh, you're out there on Twitter and so forth, right? There's some, yeah, there's some great, um, we have some great partners in social media that really put some good content out there on Twitter, at Travelers Champ. I mean, but everything's on our website. I mean, there's putting up some great content from videos to social and all the links are on there, but I had from Instagram, 
like I said, we have a really good team that tries to stay very, very relevant with what's out there. Some really fun stuff that's being posted. Um, you know, the tour's putting out some great content. Um, we're doing some fun stuff this year um, from a gaming activation standpoint that we're going to put up there. So that's more to come. That was a teaser. Um, but, you know, travelerschampionship.com, you can find all that and kind of find your favorite social feed from there and, uh, and go from there. But um, it's fun to be a part of it. So, but thank you for the time. I appreciate you uh, having some interest and, uh, and uh, you know, talk, let me talk about the tournament. To get over an hour with you is amazing. So thank you so much. No, Derek, thanks for the time. Appreciate it. And there we have it. That's Nathan Grube, the tournament director for the Travelers Championship. Such an inspiring conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you would like to find out more about the tournament and all of the good work they do, please visit travelerschampionship.com. And from there, you can find them on Twitter, Instagram, and all the other social media places. Upfront is brought to you by Mason, an integrated brand communications firm located in Southern Connecticut that provides communications ingenuity through advertising, public relations, social media, digital, and media services. To learn more, visit mason23.com or get in touch by sending an email to hello at mason23.com. And be sure to stop by mason23.com upfront That's where you can find all of the episodes and previous guests, including Cindy Bigelow from Bigelow Tea, Jason Jakubowski from Connecticut Food Bank and Food Share, and many others. This episode was produced, engineered, researched, and designed with help from Jackie Lightsey, Eliza Gladwin, and TJ Tower. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next month. Take care.